the first half of the 11th century, a new power swept into the Islamic world. Originally a semi-nomadic, pastoralist society, eking out a living on the Central Asian steppelands. Under the leadership of a series of hard-headed, charismatic rulers, a single dynasty of August Turks, known as the Seljuks, swiftly conquered close to the entirety of the Middle East and Anatolia in just a few short decades, establishing themselves as the new overlords of much of the Islamic world. Whilst much of the urbanised population of the Middle East had become relatively peaceful over the long centuries since the initial Arab invasions of the 7th and 8th centuries, inhabiting a diverse plethora of cities and provinces from Africa to Afghanistan, these horse-backed newcomers quickly made themselves known as a highly militarised and ambitious group, before long portraying themselves as the saviours of Sunni Orthodox Islam against the newly ascendant Shiite faith of the Fatimids of Northern Africa, who had just recently seized control of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, as well as the important sites of Jerusalem and the Levant. By the mid-11th century, after overcoming their regional rivals in Khorasan and Persia, the Seljuks set about usurping the long-standing state infrastructures of the region including control over the heartlands of the previously all-powerful Abbasid Caliphate, which was now a mere shadow of its former self. Having suffered a gradual disintegration of its authority over the years. Town by town, city by city, the Seljuks gradually increased their own power, always emphasising their sunny struggle against the Shiite Fatimids, and in doing so, forged themselves one of the largest empires the world had ever known. The Great Seljuk Empire burned brightly and dimmed just as quickly. By the late 11th century, it had found itself embroiled in a bitter conflict, not only with the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt, but also with the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire that still doggedly clung onto its last remaining territories in Asia Minor, having already lost vast swathes of territory to Turkoman tribesmen operating on the fringes of the Seljuk state. By this time, the once mighty Seljuk Empire, at its height stretching from Africa to India, had already begun to fracture into nominally independent states and bailiks, scattered over the vast territorial landmass from the ancient Silk Road cities of Merv and Bukhara in the east, to the arid interior of Asia Minor in the west. One of those cities, in the middle of this patchwork of Turkic warlords and Seljuk generals, was Aleppo, an already ancient and extremely wealthy metropolis situated in the northwest of modern-day Syria. Aleppo had long profited from the lucrative east-west trade routes of the Silk and Spice Roads, having already been a major player in the region for well over 3,000 years. And, 
like a number of its neighbours, a real contender to the title of oldest continually inhabited city on Earth. Aleppo was thus a highly sought-after prize, yet it was just one prize amongst many, its territories being neighboured by a number of other similarly ancient cities, now coveted by various competing warlords and generals. In the wake of Malik Shah's death in 1092, the last Seljuk Sultan to wield significant amounts of centralised authority and a real claim to the entire empire, the local power broker who gained control of Aleppo was Aksunkor al-Hajib, a former slave general to the Sultan. In the years following the Sultan's death, through a combination of diplomacy and conquest, Aksunkor, seated upon his firm power base at Aleppo, found himself in the highly coveted position of being the de facto overlord of much of Syria. Yet he was by no means unopposed. Surrounding him on all sides stood hostile claimants and rival magnates, ever eager to stake their own claims to power. Ultimately, it was the subsequent actions of one of those rival claimants to power that would inadvertently set into motion chain of events culminating in some of the most momentous moments in all of human history. In 1094, disaster struck the city of Aleppo, as the Atabeg Aksunkor was accused of the most serious crime of treason by the neighbouring ruler of Damascus, a similarly ancient and revered metropolis and the other foremost power in the region. Unfortunately for Aksunkor, the ruler of Damascus at the time was more than a simple general. He just so happened to be Tutush I, the brother of Malik Shah, a prestigious member of the Seljuk royal family, and currently just one of the many claimants to the title of Sultan. For a time, Tutush looked set to become the new Sultan, though he claimed the title in direct opposition to Malik Shah's own sons. Bakirak and Muhammad, ruling far to the east in modern-day Iran, thus effectively tearing the empire into its constituent Syrian, Mesopotamian and Persian parts. Though the exact accusations and grounds for Tutush's arrest of the Atabeg of Aleppo remain difficult to establish, Aksunkor was seized in a lightning strike and brought to stand trial in Damascus. In a coldly calculated move, reminiscent to the manner in which he first came to power in Damascus, back in 1078, when he had the Khorizmian Turkish commander who had held the city at the time beheaded, Tutush handed out the same fate to his new rival, having Aksunkor promptly and unceremoniously deprived of not only his city, but his head as well. Leaving Tutush as the new ruler of Aleppo, and undisputed overlord of Syria, a power base which he would then use to stake his claims against his nephew over in Persia in an attempt to re-establish the great Seljuk Empire. 
Aksunkor's young son, meanwhile, Imad ad-Din Zengi, just 10 years old at the time, was taken in by the governor of Mosul, another super city of the region. His name was Kerbaga, a self-made man not of the Seljuk ruling family. He was a renowned Turkic soldier with a reputation for cold ferocity. Yet he saw something in Zengi, or at the very least saw the boy as a means to a future political end, taking pity on the child and raising him as his own. Kerberger had made his reputation on the battlefield. He was one of the most powerful warlords of his day. Yet, after cautiously watching Aksumkor's downfall, he was now increasingly on the defensive, ruling over Mosul with an iron grip. Although still nominally allied to some of the other Seljuk powers of the Middle East, probably owing allegiance to the now largely symbolic Sultan Bakirik over in Persia, for the most part, Kerbaga ruled over an independent state. Little did he know it at the time, but that orphaned boy, whom he had taken in as his own, would eventually grow up to become one of the most important figures in the history of the Islamic world. In the centuries that followed, Imad ad-Din Zengi would be remembered as nothing less than the saviour of Islam, eventually sparking off a process of reunification in the Islamic world that would bring it out of its lowest point in centuries. Though in the first half of the 1090s, this future would have seemed like little more than a nightmare. At that time, without any obvious outside threat besides the Fatimids of Northern Africa, there was no real reason for the various Sunni Islamic powers to unify. Very soon, however, as councils were called, letters were sent, and events set in motion far to the west, across the Mediterranean in Europe. All this was about to change. Little did Kerbaga, Tutush, or Bakirak know it at the time, but a new era was about to dawn. one that would ultimately open up both the Middle East and Europe to a wider world stage. Yet in doing so, would also lead to a permanent state of multi-generational warfare, and in time, the deaths of hundreds of thousands. The Crusades were about to begin. In mid-1095, Tutush finally rode eastwards at the head of a vast force of warriors to press his claim to the Sultanate against his nephew, Bakirak. Much to the surprise of the various warlords of Syria, he died out there on the Persian plains after a hard-fought battle. 
In the wake of his death, there could be little doubt any longer. In all but name, the Empire was dead, and in its wake, all over its formerly held territories, arose a dizzying multitude of successor states, most of them warring against each other for some small slice of land. Within months, across the sea in Europe, in one of the most fortuitous moments of chance to ever befall the world, Pope Urban II, concerned at the similarly endemic state of warfare which European rulers tended to engage themselves in, held a council at Clermont, where he called for direct military action to the lands outside of Europe. He called for a crusade to the Islamic world. And he offered a free pass to heaven for anyone willing to go. Military aid had originally been called for by the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Comnenus in response to renewed Seljuk attacks in Asia Minor a decade earlier. Though after Urban's call for action, this military aid soon grew to become a different beast altogether. Within weeks, tens of thousands of eager warriors from all over Europe began to answer the call. Whereas Alexius had initially called for a small cadre of hardened mercenaries to assist with his impending reconquest of Anatolia, what he received was a corps of veteran European power brokers, along with their armies of tens of thousands of men, the largest European military expedition since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Some of the most powerful figures in Europe answered the call. Illustrious figures such as Bohemund of Taranto, Raymond of Toulouse and Godfrey of Bouillon, eager to take their uniquely European brand of warfare to the east, wiping out anyone who stood against them in the process and plunging the region into a titanic conflict of opposing faiths. Its legacy still resonates the world over today. Over the next two years, the First Crusade swept through Asia Minor, defeating the armies of the Seljuk successor state there, ruled over by Kilij Arslan, and conquering vast swathes of territory for Christendom. Islamic sources of the time speak of regular massacres of entire civilian populations, such as at the city of Marat, where hungry crusaders seem to have engaged in gruesome acts of cannibalism in order to survive. Unbeknownst to the crusaders, a large number of those who were allegedly killed and eaten were actually Eastern Christians, for the most part indistinguishable in dress from their Muslim neighbours. Tutosh's death two years previously had ensured that the rich Eastern portions of the Seljuk Empire remained in the hands of Bakira and Muhammad who, having lost control over their western lands, would play little role in the ensuing events, becoming increasingly Persian as the years went by. Woefully unaware of the steamroller heading their way from Europe, and seeing no particular benefit in unifying their realm under a single strong ruler, Tutush's realm was violently divided between his sons upon his death in 1095 with Dukak inheriting Damascus and Ridwan receiving Aleppo. 
in the most recent occurrence of the all-too-familiar tendency for Seljuk princes to violently dispute successions, a familial trait which had plagued the dynasty since its earliest days, Syria erupted into all-out civil war between the two brothers. The conflict enabled yet more ambitious generals and warlords to establish their own states, or, in Kerberger's case, to solidify their already existing realms. In the East, meanwhile, Bakiruk himself was plagued by yet more usurpers, including his half-brother Muhammad. In short, Malik Shah's death in 1092 had resulted in the formation of a dizzying number of successor states, many of them just as hostile to one another as they were to the Shiite Fatimids of Egypt, and in time, the armies of the Crusaders when they arrived in the region, which they did by 1098. It was in that fortuitous year, as the Middle East arguably stood at its most disunited position in centuries, that the vast armies of the First Crusade arrived seemingly out of nowhere to lay waste to the important regional capital of Antioch. Then held by Yagi Siyan, a one-time general of Malik Shah, who now found himself heavily embroiled in the civil war between the sons of Tutush, Dukak in Damascus, and Redwan in Aleppo. At first, Kerbega had benefited from the strife between the sons of Tutush, gaining prestige by lending aid to the more established powers in the region, particularly the now largely symbolic Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, al-Mustazir, who had attempted to reclaim Aleppo from Ridwan in 1095. Kerbega also lent his support to Malik Shah's son, the Sultan Bakirik, over in Persia, ever attempting to reclaim the influence his position had once held. The Abbasids, once ruling over a mighty empire stretching from Sicily to Afghanistan, were now relegated to little more than religiously significant figureheads by the ascendancy of the Seljuk Turks. Now, with the malignant factionalism which had swept through the Islamic world in the wake of Malik Shah's death, the Seljuk Sultan also teetered on the verge of political irrelevance. In 1098, when Kerbega heard that the Crusader army had arrived outside the walls of Antioch, he took it upon himself to forge a coalition to throw them back. The ruler of Antioch itself, Yagi Siyan, had recently thrown in his lot with Dukak of Damascus, along with Ilgazi, the Artikid governor of Jerusalem, yet another dynasty to arise in Syria. Ridwan, meanwhile, was allied to Ilgazi's brother, Sokmen. The two had been about to attack Dukak's lands when they heard of the sudden arrival of the First Crusade. Rather than broker a peace deal there and then and push back the Crusaders together, the rifts between the various Turkic warlords were now simply too deep. Ridwan didn't attack Dukak that day, but the various alliances between the warlords were eventually disbanded and everyone returned to their own cities. 
The city of Edessa, meanwhile, formerly held by an Armenian garrison, left over from the long bygone days of the Armenian Byzantine usurper, Philaratos Bracamios, who had held Antioch just over a decade earlier, lay directly in the path of the Crusade. Edessa was conquered by a small expeditionary force, led by the daring Frankish warrior Baldwin of Boulogne, being established as a crusader base of power in the region. Kerberger, meanwhile, still gathered momentum for his own campaign, though the other vying powers of the region increasingly looked upon him with distrust and fear, almost as much as they did the Crusaders. Should he be able to defeat the newcomers, it was feared that Kerberger would become unstoppable. Standing alone for the time being at least, Yagi Sian never really stood a chance. As the Crusader army surrounded the walls of Antioch, Kerberger set out to relieve the city. But he had to make a stop along the way. A group of Frankish adventurers had just seized the city of Edessa, and Kerberger couldn't afford to leave any enemy garrisons behind him on his way to Antioch. For three weeks, both armies besieged their respective cities. The Crusaders at Antioch, Kerberger at Edessa. Before long, Kerberger realised that the defences of the city were simply too strong to take quickly. Facing the agonising decision of what to do next, he decided to abandon the siege of Edessa and move on to Antioch. The whole crusade was perhaps saved by his time wasted at Edessa, and by the time he finally arrived at Antioch, and around the 7th of June, the crusaders had already won the siege. Bohemund of Taranto, having made contact with a local Armenian city watchman, who allowed him into the city. They weren't able to restock the city with supplies, however, before Kerberger arrived with his massive army, and himself began the besiegement of Antioch. Disagreements and infighting soon broke out amongst the Atabeg's army, however. Internal quarrels between the assembled emirs taking precedence over unity against the Franks. Kerberger's force was actually made up of levies from Baghdad, Persia, Palestine and Damascus, divided between various factions. As the siege wore on, the only thing that united these disparate peoples was a common fear of Kerberger's perceived real goal, the conquest of all their lands. If Antioch fell to him, it was feared that he would become invincible. When Bohemund, the leader of the Christian army, decided to attack on the 28th of June, the various assembled emirs decided to humble Kerberger by abandoning him at the critical moment of battle. Crusader army, newly emboldened by the alleged discovery of the Holy Lance, an important Christian relic, surprised Kerberger with their discipline and resolve. Despite many of them already having eaten their horses, and many of them themselves resembling corpses having been starving for so long, the 
Crusader army surprised the Turks with a devastating cavalry charge, leading to complete chaos within Kerbega's ranks. After finally being routed by the Crusaders, Kerbega was forced to retreat, returning to Mosul a broken man, dying there in 1102. Most of the Crusaders went on to besiege Jerusalem after the Battle of Antioch, besides the Norman adventurer Bohemund of Taranto, who remained at the city, setting himself up there as a prince. Baldwin of Edessa eventually became king of a newly established Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1100, thus seeing the establishment of three fully autonomous Crusader polities in the Middle East. A fourth would arise soon afterwards in the form of the County of Tripoli. Upon that city's eventual capture from its Turkish garrison in 1109. By 1102, Kerbega was dead, but out of his ashes, a new breed of Turkic warlords would arise. Each as ruthless and as powerful as the last, but none more so than that orphaned boy taken in by Kerbega all those years before, Imad Ad-Din Zengi. I'll be covering his meteoric rise and his swift fall in the next episode of this series, and eventually the entire history of the Great Seljuk Empire. This is a brand new podcast, so if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles then the best way to help is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash historytimeuk. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.